Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What's up, Internet, and welcome back to the Engadget Podcast. I'm Senior Editor Devendra Hardwar. This week, I'm joined by Deputy Editor Nathan Ingram. Hey, Nate. Hey, Devendra. Good morning, and good morning to everyone out there. Good morning. And I'm bringing Nate on because, first of all, you have experience with Frameworks laptops. And I want to talk about the Framework Laptop 16, which is this really cool modular gaming laptop this company just produced. And uh, I basically spent the last week (laughs) diving into it and the entire weekend writing about it. And um, we're going to have some thoughts on this thing. And also, Nate, you wrote about the Mac turning 40, which is a pretty significant milestone. Yeah. Turned 40 on the 24th. And my whole uh, thesis is that it had a little bit of a rough 30s, as some of us do, but mm. uh, it is well positioned <laughs> for the next decade to come, I would I yeah. would argue. We should definitely break down the uh, the Mac in age groups, I guess. So how were the teenage years? Maybe that's when things got cool with the iMac. But we'll talk mm-hmm. about all that, folks. And uh, Sherlyn is off this week. Uh, she is busy. She's super busy doing a ton of stuff, but we hope to have her back on next week. As always, folks, if you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Leave us a review on iTunes. Drop us an email at podcast at Engadget.com. That's always super helpful. So let's talk about the Framework Laptop 16, which I think is such a quintessentially Engadget thing. They like This is a laptop. It is a modular laptop. Uh, Framework has been around for four years now. We've reviewed their first 13-inch model. You reviewed the Chromebook that exists as well. And the cool thing is, like, this is a company that basically broke down the laptop into all of its components uh, so that you can replace everything. You could eventually replace the CPU in this thing. They actually invented a successful detachable GPU, which I think is the first time anybody has actually ever done that in a laptop. So that's pretty significant. But pretty much every other component is easily removable, replaceable down the line. And that is something we just have not seen in the world of laptops and uh you know quick preview to my review i think this thing is, is kind of it is miraculous it exists it's miraculous it gives us this level of customization i just wish it were a better gaming laptop because that is how they're selling it and uh, we'll talk more about that but nate you tested the uh the chromebook framework machine how did you feel about that thing i liked it a lot and yes it was expensive i believe it is a thousand dollars and obviously for a chromebook that's a ton <laughs> for a chromebook, of money yeah uh, but the fact that you can legitimately take it all apart and, and put it back together is, is, and, and do it so easily, like anyone can do this is really impressive. Uh, so yeah, you're paying a thousand bucks, uh, but if you can make it last, you know, eight years, then that seems like a pretty good, uh, pretty good deal to me. Obviously at this point, most laptops don't have, um, 
you know, RAM you can replace, hard drives you can replace, that's all out the window. Being able to customize the ports the way you want it is really fun. You know, you mentioned you want Ethernet. I don't need that as much, but maybe I want an SD slot. Like, that's all great. And then the 16 that you reviewed, the gaming one, you know, you mentioned the removable GPU. Like, that's crazy, too. If no one's ever done that before, Mm -hmm. like, that really makes it even more interesting. Like, the Chromebook hardware is pretty basic, so there's only so much you can do there. But this new one with multiple keyboard decks and, like, yeah, it sounds like it takes what already seemed intriguing to me to a new level it is super cool i do think like for a very particular kind of geek like especially the people who used to build their own pcs and i talk to those folks now too like we're just all like i don't we don't have time to do that like a pc build takes practically an entire day like to Mm -hmm. get everything together to troubleshoot and everything it is so much easier and honestly doesn't cost that much more to just get a pre-built system from Corsair or something or like from any of these other PC makers, Falcon PC, all these folks who make computers, uh, you could get a nice pre-built system from Newegg or something pretty easily now. It doesn't cost that much more. So the joy of building your own desktop really comes down to you doing it yourself, you having ownership of it uh, and being able to soft up down the line. Like you know, you, you know what your system is built out of when you do it yourself. Um, the framework is interesting because when this laptop ships, I opened it up and it looks like a pretty boring silver gaming laptop typically, yeah. right? There's so not like, a lot design-wise to speak of, right? They're, they're pretty basic, and I totally get why. It's actually yeah. surprisingly thin, decently like light for the weight. It's like 4.6 pounds without the GPU, 5.3 pounds with the GPU. Not too bad for like a 60-inch gaming laptop. But when you open this thing up for the first time, uh, you see the touchpad area, you see a wrist rest, and you see a blank hole. <laughs> Where the keyboard yeah, is supposed to be. That's interesting because mm-hmm. the Chromebook I got was like ready to go out of the box and you could yeah. start changing it. But yeah, I, like I think this it, requires a little bit of setup. I think it depends on which one you buy. So I don't, I actually don't know if my, the review model I got was the DIY thing or the pre-built thing. You can get pre-built ones that are just like fully together, I think ready to go at the box. But the thing I got just showed me this giant hole and I was like, well, this is interesting because <laughs> under this thing I can see. I can see the RAM. I can see there was like a metal plate, which they call the mid plate, which separates the top components from like the motherboard. But I could see things and I saw more things than I ever did in any other laptop. The last time I saw a super customizable laptop like this was the Alienware Area 51M in 2019. And that thing was like a hugely ambitious, giant machine. It was like an 18 inch gaming laptop. But uh, it had desktop components. Dell was really pitching it as like the super upgradable machine. Within a year, I think, or within a year and a half, the entire dream died. Like it never had upgradable components. Dell pretty much killed support for it. They just like quietly backed away from it. Um, Frank Azor, the guy who co-founded Alienware, uh, helped to like spearhead that whole project. But he ended up leaving the company before like Dell like screwed up the whole like upgrade process thing. But Frank Azor is now at AMD. He's now the head like gaming experience person at AMD. And he was also very instrumental towards helping Framework get this laptop right because this thing is running Radeon graphics. Um, so a mm-hmm. big company tried this five years ago, didn't make it happen. No one's really tried to do it since. So and, yeah. we're in fairly uncharted waters here because Dell never actually got to the point where they're providing any upgrades. And Dell's actually a pretty good company to do this because they are known for making systems on demand, right? So they're a company that typically does have their systems built in a way that you could easily remove some of their like business machines. You can upgrade the RAM, you could upgrade the storage and stuff. That stuff is actually table stakes. You can do that in a lot of other gaming laptops too. It's the other Mm -hmm. stuff like the graphics, the keyboard, the CPU, like you can never really touch those things on other machines. Uh, This 
Framework Laptop 16 is powered by the Radeon RX 7700S GPU, which is a very new one. Um, it also has a Ryzen 7 7840HS chip to start. You can also get the Ryzen 9 with it as well. So it's like on paper, pretty powerful. I think like just the whole setup of this thing is cool because I took off the mid plate. I could get to the RAM, the SSDs, the wireless networking card. I could detach the battery, and just yank that out of there. It would have been cool if the battery was like actually at the bottom, like the old MacBooks, you know, where you could just like pop it out yeah, and yeah. get a new one in there. But that that's too much to ask if you want like sturdy build quality these days. Um, but the fact that I could even touch the laptop's battery and get it out of there, you could remove the speakers, like you could do all sorts of stuff under the hood. Yeah, and a lot of this is about um, being able to repair, I think, more than upgrade too, right? Like you're not going to swap out the speakers, but if one breaks, you can just get a new speaker which most laptops, that's not the case, right? That's not the case. Also, these speakers are terrible. So we will talk about the overall quality of all this stuff. Like these are three watt, tinny, tiny, ugly PC speakers. Maybe they'll offer you an upgrade down the line. Like that could be cool. At least the door is yeah. open for that. Yeah. Um, putting this thing back together is also pretty easy. Like the mid plate has like 17 screws, but they give you a small screwdriver. You can just kind of tweak those things in. It's not a big deal. What is cool is that once you're setting up the machine, like you could put the keyboard anywhere it's really your choice. So I initially had it like left aligned keyboard, the touchpad right below it. And it's almost like Legos. You can just like slide these things in. The keyboard snaps on magnetically, which feels so good. I just love hardware that has that like magnetic snap and grip and stuff. Um, so I had left aligned before. Um, I had some spacer or no, I had the, there's like a multicolored uh, keyboard programmable thing that you could do as well that can sit alongside the keyboard. So I did that. If I were like a streamer or somebody doing like other broadcasting stuff, you could program those buttons to do things. Um, it was cool. It was cool that I could basically customize this machine exactly how I wanted. Turned out I didn't want to actually live that way. So I centered the keyboard. I centered the touchpad. It only took me a few minutes to make that swap. So that's flexibility. That's pretty cool. You can't do that with any other machine. Yeah, being able to do just a few minutes is really cool, too. And obviously, the same goes with the ports, where you can just, like, literally pop them in and out. So if you're like, oh, I'm going, uh, I'm traveling, and I know I need X, Y, and Z, you can just, boom, switch, switch that in. And then, yeah, that's really fun. Um, the port situation is cool, right? Because they're just, like, little, they're, like, little tunnels with USB-C ports at the end. And the actual ports are just these modules you stick in there. So it's just, like, extensions to USB-C. Yeah, and you can actually, if I recall, um, when I was testing the framework Chromebook, you can, um, like I plugged my power cord into the like recessed USB-C port to try and see if it was, if that would work <laughs> uh -huh. and it did. So like if you happen to like, you know, forget or lose one or something, you can still take advantage of that USB-C port if you, if you really need it. Oh, absolutely. Is, yeah. I mean, the, the cool thing is those extra ports are just like, they're so small that you could just like put them in your bag, right? And swap them out as you need to. Um, and that's, it's all pretty simple. The entire like package actually feels pretty good once you put it together, but you know, it's it's like how about once, using it? How about using it as a as like a productivity laptop? It's great. It has a great sixteen inch uh, sixteen inch screen. It is like super. It's pretty bright. Has good color depth and everything. It's a nice, um, super fast screen too. I believe it's one hundred sixty five hertz. Can you give me some context on the the specs, like on the on the processor on the GPU? Like, how does this stack up uh, in Windows world? The new Ryzen chip, the Ryzen seven, I think, is about comparable to like uh, Intel's latest fast. 14th gen GPUs, not the like Meteor Lake stuff we've been talking about. The Radeon RX 7700S is about comparable to the RTX 4060, 
which is where the problem is, right? The okay. RTX 4060 is a mid to low end uh, NVIDIA GPU. I wouldn't call it low end. It can be fast, but you can find the RTX 4060 on $1,000 laptops, right? On some on some laptops under $1,000. The problem with the framework is that you're paying for all this uh, modular support, right? Like this thing starts at $1,399 for the DIY edition, which includes the CPU, uh, but RAM, storage, and OS, all that stuff, like in the external GPU, those are all extra. So you have to add that. So to you the don't cost. even have a GPU or a or a or a RAM or anything. You have you know? um, so the CPU has like the built-in Radeon graphics. So you right. have that. Okay. And if you happen to have RAM and storage and stuff laying around, then you could just plug it in. You have a machine. Uh, but if you don't, then you know that's added cost. You can get pre-built machines uh, starting at sixteen ninety-nine with the Ryzen chip, sixteen gigabytes of RAM, five twelve gigabytes of storage, and Windows eleven home. Uh, the high-end overkill edition starts at $2,099 with a Ryzen 9, 32 gigabytes of RAM, and one terabyte of storage. And if you want that Radeon GPU, that's $400. On so top none of, of these configurations of these. you just talked about have the GPU? None of them do. Okay, so you're talking at least two grand to get one with a GPU, basically. If you want the pre-built with the GPU, yeah, two grand, easy. So compare that to other gaming laptops with the RTX 4060. Those things go for a thousand dollars, or sometimes less on Newegg. Like I was just comparing prices. That's pretty wild. So you're not going to get value from this machine. You're also not going to get super great gaming performance. You know, I think this Radeon card, it's perfectly fine in 1440p. Um, it was over 60 FPS in Halo Infinite with all the settings turned on. It was over 60 FPS in Cyberpunk with like or around 60 with the ray tracing stuff. But it was really struggling to stay there. Um, it is slower actually than the RTX 4060. Um, so that could be a downside for people and, you know, like, yeah, it's just not as useful as that GPU. So and that's so a tough some, thing. Yeah. As somebody who, uh, doesn't game on a PC, but has always been kind of interested in wanting to, but like, I don't have the, you know, interest or wherewithal to like build my own computer. Like this initially sounded interesting because I like the idea of just being able to get something ready to go, uh, and then potentially upgrade it down the line. And like, I'm not worried about the best performance. I just want to be able to play the games that, that I'm interested in. Uh, but yeah, if I have to spend two grand to do that, you have to be pretty committed to that platform and it had better get these upgrades down the line. Otherwise you're just paying extra for a laptop that you can tweak a little bit, but isn't going to actually be any better. Right. I mean, you better hope the framework still exists in a couple of years too. That's the other thing. Um, we keep saying hardware is hard and it is, you know, so it's tough to, if Dell could make the Alienware swing happen, it's really hard to expect like a small company like this to survive. They do have VC funding. I believe it's like over $20 million at this point. Um, but this is such a niche product, right? They've raised $27 million in funding, but this is a niche use case even for gamers right which is already a niche subsection of pc users so you know I, I don't know i don't know how compelling this will be for a lot of people uh but the repairability is good it does actually like it, it i can get to all those components you can actually swap out the external gpu in a couple of minutes as well and just plug in um the plain like fan bottom and that'll just use the internal card and that gives you a lighter laptop. It will make the battery last a little longer. So, so again, if you're going to yeah. travel and you're not worried about game performance, you can tweak the configuration to like, so like that is pretty cool. I like that idea. It's cool. Of like it's having just, it set up one way at yeah, home yeah. and then another way for if you're traveling. But what whatever. if you just bought a super light gaming laptop that 
you know, costs about the same amount of money and just could do everything you didn't have to think about so much. No, um, no. It is, I, you know, I just spent some time with the new uh, Asus ROG Zephyrus G14, which freaking just love it. I love it. I was saying, has that been like quality? our consensus, like generally best gaming laptop for like the average person for a while now, right? I think so. Since that thing came out, that thing weighed three and a half pounds, Nate. Uh, it initially started under $1,500. He was like super inexpensive, had a good screen, had a good keyboard. The only thing it lacked early on was a webcam and they fixed that. And this new model is just like, it feels so good. Like solid build quality. Um, I'm not sure if you can actually upgrade the RAM and stuff, but just you want a like nice compact machine. Um, that can play some games. That can actually play games. You don't have to worry yeah. about all this stuff. Then, you know, I just think you have so many more options now. Gaming laptops, we have covered many budget ones that start under a thousand dollars and we'll get probably get you similar to performance to this because they have the rtx 4060 um i'll admit uh framework is not alone uh razor also sells you know a machine that costs over two thousand dollars with the 4060 that's the razor blade 18 so some people do this as well but you're also getting you know you're getting razor style you're getting like a lot of stuff with the <laughs> razor machine which you're not quite getting with this this one you're just really paying for upgradability um so nate like you were saying you were thinking about getting a gaming laptop is this more or less compelling to you now that you've heard all this it's i'd say it's a little less so um like again like i like the idea of something that's upgradable and repairable um but to pay twice as much you know for that is a little bit of a tough sell um like i said like i don't need the most bleeding edge specs but as, as long as it'll like work and play games and, and and not be like too much of a boat anchor then like i could see that being a you know what you said about the was it the g14 like it's not it could just be a very good like everyday laptop that can also play games and like yes. that is probably more compelling to me that's pretty much it um i will say like this thing we've come a long way since the alienware area 51m that thing required two giant ac adapters because oh we didn't God. have the ability to, it was running desktop stuff. So it needed like 500 watts of power and each brick can only give you like up to 300, I think, without catching fire. So that oh thing my God. <laughs> had two AC adapters in addition to being enormous. It weighed like eight over eight and a half pounds on its own. It was a beast. The build quality was not great. The first unit we got from the Alienware, a key fell off the keyboard within like 10 minutes. And just like, <laughs> it was broken. It was just a broken key. Um, so there were just a lot of problems there. I think... The build quality of this at least feels good. The keyboard feels sturdy. I like typing on it. So if you're a tinkerer and you just want to get a nice big machine that has a good CPU, I will say this Ryzen chip did benchmark really well. Mm -hmm. um, this is a good machine if you want to just buy it and like keep it for five to 10 years and maybe get the GPU down the line. You know, if you want that flexibility, it could be cool. But again, that's for a very small subsection of users. And I guess that's just their target market, you know? When you talk about uh, the potential for framework being around or not being around, I wonder if they are angling or interested in being bought. Could like, would, it, would they be appealing to another company that could then just kind of like take this and like run with it as like a sub brand, mm -hmm. you know? I could see, I could see the, especially the like Chinese and Taiwanese PC companies looking at this, like Asus is always trying to do cool stuff like this. So I could see them being interested, but framework, like, they do have like a cool corporate philosophy. I believe the framework founders came over from uh, MetaQuest, I think, um, or something on their like product side. So, you know, they're trying to do a thing. Um, you know, right to repair is a bigger and bigger trend these days, too. So, hey, it'll appeal to some people in those respects. Um, I do feel like if a big company bought this, like it 
that's pretty much the end of like the idea of their cool independence is the thing. Like yeah. this is this is sort of like Oculus before Facebook body, you know, where Oculus yeah. was a weird little company that was doing things nobody had done before. So Yeah, and I want yeah. them to be successful just like for that alone. Like it's good to see somebody doing something different <laughs> for sure and maybe rather than somebody snapping them up outright i would rather see a company like microsoft or somebody uh just hey i'm gonna put money into you mm-hmm. to keep you going as your own thing and let's see what happens which is basically what microsoft did with OpenAI, and i guess look what happened there so i don't know i guess we will see but the framework laptop 16 a really cool machine i just wish it was a better gaming machine uh, nate the mac has turned 40 years old, um, or will soon. What's the exact date there? The date was uh, Wednesday, January 24th. So at this point, it is now ah. 40 and a day or two. 40 and a day or two. It's funny. I think you pointed out, Nate, like uh, my birthday is in a couple of weeks. So I am almost almost in line with the Mac yep. age-wise. Uh, yep. I will also be turning 40 in a couple of weeks, man. Uh, Nate, you took on this piece, um, basically looking back at the Mac's history and everything. Can you break this down for us? Yeah. I mean, obviously, there's a lot to talk about with the history of the Mac over 40 years. But the way that I wanted to focus it was looking at the last decade and saying, uh, you know, in 2014, it was conceivable that the Mac might not be a thing 10 years later. And now it seems to me very obvious that it's not going anywhere and that the lineup is somehow in a better place than it's been for like at least 10 years, maybe longer. Uh, And that is almost entirely thanks to Apple Silicon, I would say. Oh, absolutely. But let's let's rewind, Nate. What happened in 2014? Because that was a pretty weird year for Mac. Yeah. So 2014, uh, you know, Apple obviously had the iPhone, which had become a mega success. Uh, The iPad was still getting a lot of interest from the company. Um, And then like the Mac was like in decent shape, particularly from a laptop standpoint, right? The MacBook Air had like become a very much like default go-to computer for a lot of people. Every PC maker Uh, was copying it. Like everybody wanted to make a MacBook Air. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the MacBook Pro was still not like insanely expensive. You got like a decent amount of of power for your money with like a good screen and lots of ports and and a good keyboard and all that good stuff. So like the laptops were pretty good, but if you start to look closer, uh, things were not as good specifically like the Mac pro is probably the, the best example of like things not being okay there. They had this very limited expansion tower that cost a ton of money. It was really cool feat of engineering, but like you don't pay thousands of dollars when you're a professional who needs like the best hardware for that. Uh, right. And so then, you know, at the same time, the Intel, I think Intel was starting to be a little bit of a drain on them in terms of like it limiting what they wanted to get in terms of battery life and mm-hmm, performance mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Uh, but for me, things really took the t- a south turn in 2016 with the MacBook Pro revamp, uh, the infamous butterfly keyboard, uh, removing all the ports, making it thinner and lighter, which like in a vacuum is a good thing, but really affected like performance. Uh, and battery life, and then the touch bar, you know, when you add all these things together, it just, like, didn't make sense. You're like, who is this laptop for? It was, like, a more powerful version of the Air, almost, uh, not something meant for professionals. And the weirdness in the lineup went on from there. The MacBook Air didn't get updates for a while, so it had a low-res screen and, you know, not current hardware. Um, The iMac and the Mac Mini were fine, but not, like, super compelling, The Mac Pro was still languishing. You know, it just like it felt like 
they didn't know what they wanted to do with the Mac. There were point. so many misses, Nate. Like you're talking about the 2016 era MacBook Pros. Everybody hated that keyboard. Apple was like, no, 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 no. It's fine. It's fine. Totally yeah. fine. Bit them in the butt like a couple years later. It was. And and I yeah. think that the one thing you could say is like at least that keyboard made sense when they introduced it on the super like light and thin sure. 12 inch MacBook. Yeah. Which they were going like yeah. they were going for as, as thin and light as possible. And like that's fine. But there was no reason to take that philosophy across every laptop they made. Like there just wasn't. Um and they and to Apple's credit, they fixed that. And I was shocked when they made the 16 inch MacBook Pro. Where they fixed the keyboard, they put back in a scissor that switch keyboard. That took a while, man. That took like, a long time. It, it, yeah, it did. But the fact that they made that one thicker and heavier than the predecessor at least told me, okay, they are going to walk back some of this stuff instead of just sticking to no, no. This has to be this thin and this light at this yeah. point. So, so that like, was 2019, that, the yeah. revamped MacBook Pro 16. Yeah. Yep. Um, so we're getting close to like the re- the turnaround, right? Because in 2020. At WWDC, they announced Apple Silicon, and then that fall they brought out the uh, I think the new um, the M1 Air, a new MacBook Air, yeah. M1 Air, the M1 13-inch Pro, which like was kind of a weird computer, but nonetheless, and then the uh, Mac Mini, and then those. I mean, you know, you reviewed the M1 MacBook Air, and it was fabulous, right? Like they was, really, yeah, it was miraculous. Uh, sometimes you get these these products that are just like, oh, you touch it, and you're like, oh, this. The entire world is different after I touch this thing, right? Because that machine had no fan. And when I started benchmarking it, Nate, like it was blowing away all the Windows laptops we had seen that year from like a freaking little mobile chip with no cooling. It was just, yeah. it was absolutely wild. Let's take a step back. So the, yes. the past 10 years have been bad for Apple, but also what do you, what do you remember from like the nineties and the two thousands? Like when did right. you start getting into Macs? Yeah, so I got my first Mac in 2003. I got the 12-inch uh, MacBook, uh, or I guess it would have been the PowerBook, then, yeah, the PowerBook yeah, yeah. G4. The white one? Um, say again? Was it no, the it was before that. It was it was on it was on PowerPC still, so it was the it was just like your aluminum, tiny little... Uh, that was a nice rel- computer, like that whole era. It arrow. was cool, yeah. Yeah, it was, yeah, I really liked those, um, but obviously performance was starting to suffer, right? So when they went to Intel in 2006... That gave them a shot in the arm, I would say, in terms of performance, uh, right? They started to be more competitive. You could even run Windows on it if you wanted to, which was like a cool trick for some people. That was a wild time to be online, Nate, because I do remember I was working in IT at the time. It was announced, I think, actually in 2005, but didn't actually hit till 2006. Yeah, probably announced at WW in 2005, I I was out of college. I was working in IT at the time, and just like people were freaking out online all the hardcore yeah. like users in our department as well like that was uh that was an amherst college it was like a small school so all the like computer nerds knew each other people were freaking out because they're like what's why why is this closer to windows now why is apple doing right this? are they are they losing yeah. the soul of what makes it the mac or mm-hmm, whatever mm-hmm. um but no, no it, it just made him better useful. yeah yeah it just made him better um but yeah i so before the that 2003 mac that i got i when i was a kid i had an apple 2gs so i didn't have a mac until then um i thought about getting the imac g4 with the with the screen on the on the like pole which aka I, the des- best imac ever made the design i still want so one beautiful. It, the design yeah. was so cool uh, didn't make sense at the time, <laughs> and then I corrected that a year later and got the little. That the would little have been the perfect book. college computer, Nate. Uh, right? I will. I will tell you when I was working in IT. So I basically had like I had computers up to my elbows. I was always like running out, repairing machines, so like, swapping. Just machines. like right now. Yeah, just like right now. Actually, not not that much different. But 
I could always reclaim old hardware that nobody wanted. So the Ooh. minute I could get a lampshade iMac and just make that my like one of my desk computers, yeah. um, I did it because that thing is nice. beautiful. And Apple never, yeah. never, we have never achieved that sort of greatness again. I guess in terms no. of desktop design, the, the 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 current iMac. I mean, ever since they moved away from that in like I was like again 2005 or so, and they did the G5, and then all the Intel ones. It's just been like the computer behind the monitor, which like makes perfect sense. It's very practical. But it definitely does not have that same like wow factor. I mean, the base that thing had like a round base, right? And you don't. Yep. You can actually not have that much stuff. Like it, uh, a Mac Mini does not take up that much space. They could do it again. They, they I think they could do, it, do again. it again. Like, give me a real rotating uh, or a screen that I could at least reorient in multiple ways. I could see them doing it. Give me a screen that could go vertical, man. Samsung did that thing. You oh know? yeah. Like, give yep. us, give us a full articulating rotating screen that could be a really interesting way to rejuvenate the iMac for some oh, people. Man. Yeah, that's a fun that's a fun idea. Um I would definitely be into that. Um <laughs> I, th- I yeah, think so Mac the, people would be, yeah. The 2000s were an interesting decade, right? They had that they had the really cool design stuff in the first half. Um, well, the kind ti- of almost the titanium stuff too, right? They like yeah. those the titanium power books looked unlike any computer we had ever seen before. Like P- again, PC makers were trying to end uh trying to copy it whenever i saw that in college i was thinking, oh that kid has money right or at least yeah, that kid like yep. could afford this wild machine yeah i remember i think it was in my my junior year it would have been 2001 or so my my roommate uh had the titanium power book g4 and i was like well hello hello uh that definitely got me interested in max um and then i met a graphic designer friend who had a really nice dual monitor uh power mac tower set up and uh it was right when os 10 was coming out and like getting you know it was super super janky at first but it was starting to like hit the usefulness you know they were getting it to the point where it actually works um and i was like yeah this just like sounds like a good time i don't it's, know it, just uh, was it, it looks it looks so good like uh apple does a good job of giving you attractive hardware too like they i think they were the first company to really make really good looking computers other than the sony bios but, yeah you know like that was a time. I will I will tell our listeners, by the way. First of all, I want to know what was your first Mac experience, or are you just a diehard Windows user who never like got into these things? Let us know, podcastinggadget.com. If you want to hear more old hats talking about the Macs, actually, um, the upgrade podcast with Jason Snell, they have a good group of folks, including John Gruber and you know, some of their regulars talking about their memories of the Macs. And you know, Jason has been writing, I think he was like head of Mac World. Five years or something. Yeah, since like was. the early nineties, yeah. right? So like he was doing this stuff forever. Um, uh, but also they're talking about folks who, you know, who bought Macs in the eighties and their experience with the some of those first machines. I will tell you, I think my first the first time I touched a Mac was certainly well, no, there were, I definitely went to a public school that had like some of the old 80s machines and they were not that impressive. But then I think I was in a class that had an Apple II or something where whatever the one that had like the nice thin keyboard and it was like all white and just like it might be the 2GS. Yeah. It was yeah. so beautiful and so elegant. The keyboard felt so good. And I think that was the first time I realized computers could look good just because I wrote aesthetically all it was my thing. school papers on that guy for, for years. It looks so good. Um, yeah, I didn't have a Windows machine until I think it was 95 or 96. We got a Windows computer to replace that. Um, and yeah, I've I've used both platforms for most of my life, but like my default at this point is a Mac. Uh, and it, I think it could go either way. But for me, a lot of it is just about the fact that I now have like so many little software tools and things that are just optimized to to this setup that aren't necessarily cross, cross-platform. Um, but just like a little, and I, I find like the, 
there's just so many good developers making really like beautiful, well-designed apps for the Mac um, that sometimes Apple then rips off and that's a bummer. But, uh, you know, like I still use this, uh, this notes app bear and there's this journal app day one that I really love. And I'm just such a nerd for this stuff. I mean, people are ride or die for their favorite Mac app stuff too. Like, uh, I know people still love BB edit, you know, which has been around yeah. forever, but their lives kind of revolve around it too. Um, I will tell you folks, like I, I have fond memories of Macs. Uh, I do covet some Mac hardware. I think the first good laptop I bought myself was the MacBook Air 13 inch when it hit 999. That was like 2010, 2011. Um, but I was I always a PC year. guy. Like my family, computers were so expensive in the 90s. Like uh, we ended up getting like these random cheaper ones. Like Packard Bell was a company oh, that yeah. had really cheap and expensive computers for a while. Never had a gateway. But that I also had a popped up in college. Yep. Gateway was good. Like companies were making really interesting PCs at that point, but just because they had to get them out the door, they had to make them cheap. But yeah, and then uh, before college, it was like summer of two thousand one. I built my own desktop, and it had to be Windows, and that's yep. it. I Windows never forever. looked back. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So Nate, there. Let me just see here. We hit the Intel chip milestone. Then, like, um, the MacBook Air. I do remember the initial MacBook Air reveal where Steve Jobs pulled it out of a yellow manila envelope. And that also, again, changed the world forever, I think. Although I, I would say that it took a few years because the fir- there was the first generation, which I think used the same hard drive that was in an iPod. Yes. So, like, yes. slow. So slow. slow. So slow. Not worth it. But in 2010, they redesigned it to, like, the way it was for a good eight years uh, and then I think in 2011, they even bumped they, I think it, that's when it went to the Intel Core 2 Duo. I think it got an SSD at that point. Yes. Yeah. And that's when it hit on performance. Like it was the SSD and the chips were good enough that it felt you could use it for everything every day. Most people could anyway. Obviously, you're not going to push it super hard. But there's a reason why for, you know, five to seven years, every journalist in the world had one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, every kid at the coffee shop or in college wanted one because they just made sense. They weren't too expensive. They they hit the, the basics really well. Battery was as good as you could expect at that time, right? Performance was fine. The software was mature enough. Like there was there was enough, um, you know, enough stuff had moved to the web slash the Mac had enough app support that you weren't going to be like, oh, I don't have X piece of software for the most part. Um, yeah, it really like it really worked then. So like the first half of that decade was like the decade, the time of the MacBook era for sure. That was a real turning point for Apple. That was also, yeah, the time I first, that was the first Mac I bought myself because the price wasn't that bad and the financing was okay. I actually want to know, I also know we have another Mac user here. Podcast producer, Ben, you had a Mac that you lived with for a very long time. What made you a Mac user? So my first ever Mac, after having used uh, Windows XP since... I think starting in 2001, 2002 is when like my family uh, got the the first family computer in the living room, like in the shared yeah, area. Yeah, yeah, in the shared area because it was the early 2000s stranger danger like uh let's make sure that we are watching our kids and make sure what they're doing online. Oh, I'm so glad I had the internet in the 90s when like parents didn't even realize yeah. that. It was just like, hey, I was just doing whatever I wanted, man. It was all great. You think Tumblr's weird. <laughs> and I mean, it's gone back in that direction, hasn't it? Because, I mean, you can do whatever you want on, like, an iPod Touch. Uh, that, that's actually the span of, like, 
the children of my family. It's, it went from like big gray computer in the living room to my youngest cousins doing whatever they wanted on an iPod touch. And man, I don't know how poisoned their brains got because of that. Well, we'll we'll see in the in the coming years. You keep us posted. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so first Mac experience for me would be the laptop that I got for college, which is a 2008 era MacBook Pro. Um, mm-hmm. Still, yeah, required a like push in on a button outside you know on the outside of the Uh laptop to open the clamshell part of it Mm -hmm. because it had those two little like plastic um catches to make sure that it uh, stayed closed um and it just (laughs) i'm gonna say it it just worked it was just exactly what i needed it's not like I was ever particularly confused about using a Windows laptop or anything. It's just that I had some tech-savvy people in my family who said, if you want really, really good build quality, go for an Apple laptop. And that's what convinced me to make the switch, and I haven't gone back since. I mean that was true you know, back then, still true now. Yeah. Go your ahead. your mention of the little uh, latch on the on the like switch to open this display reminds me of one of my favorite two thousands Mac things, which is the sleep light. <laughs> yeah. Like when you close the laptop <laughs> or you put the computer to sleep, there is this little white light that just pulsed like it was yes. breathing. Yes. And I was so sad when they finally got rid of that. I realized that since they wake up so fast and everybody just closes it. It's not really necessary, but it's just one of those little aesthetic touches that just like makes you happy. I mean, I miss when the Apple logo lit up. That was cool. Bring that back. Come on. I mean, but didn't that end up becoming a problem when screens got thinner and thinner? I think Mm, that was it. Although you have LEDs now. We have so much technology to make. (laughs) We have the power. Yeah. Yeah, I actually remember the sleep light also because I mean that was right around the time that like I was starting to learn about you, you, like combinations of like con- computer science and humanities and stuff and like the entire idea of like human computer interaction was like really really interesting to me as someone in like late high school yeah. early college. I wish my school So I remember that. like yeah crowing about it i I think i like Mm -hmm. showed my mom i was like somebody with like a phd in like this cool combination (laughs) of computers and not computers probably Mm -hmm. said like we want this computer to be a little bit cute so let's make it look like it's peacefully breathing as it's a sleeping it's just little quirks i think that just endear people to mac so that's kind of how it is i mean that's i i feel like uh i i own a volvo car now and i'm now one of those volvo people that occasionally looks at the volvo reddit because there are so many like cool things about that machine that nobody else is really thinking about them i'm digging so i love when machines do that i love subcultures around specific things uh nate i mean magsafe i think is a good one right like people got so mad when they got rid of the magsafe power adapter because it just made so much sense oh man i was so happy to see that back and now whenever whenever i encounter a computer that doesn't have something equivalent like even as much as i like the zephyrus g14 like that has a weird thick adapter where it's just like i know if i pull that cable if i'm around my kids and they like run by that computer is going to go flying and that's a problem we we have solved so easily um nate you talked about the m1 macbook air like that was kind of where you were in the timeline i do want to point out like that whole thing was possible 
because Apple spent basically the previous decade focusing so hard on mobile, right? Like focusing on the iPhone, on the iPad, at at a point starting to make their own chips for those things. And that is what gave Apple the power to kind of bring that back to Mac, which is, it's kind of funny to see that happen. Like ultimately yeah. the mobile stuff made their desktop stuff better. Yeah, and I think that from a software perspective too, like as a as a guy who uses an iPhone, like I just I understand that the notions where you talk about iMessage and there's like the antitrust concerns and like people keeping people locked in, but like you know you use an iPhone I believe and then use Windows most of the time. I just I take so much delight by how closely the two things can work together. Um, I think it is a huge selling point for the products, both from a Mac and uh, iPhone perspective. And like, I understand the notion of like, should, you know, this, this platform be available to people who are on windows or Android, like that's a discussion that we can have, but just the, the numerous ways the two things work together is very pleasing to me. Um, but yes, from a hardware perspective, right. Like, you know, even if the iPad has not been as successful as Apple maybe predicted or wanted it to be, uh, you know, the fact that they were able to iterate on the chip in there, make it eventually so powerful that they're like, okay, we can just drop this into a computer, essentially. I believe the developer kits for the Apple Silicon, um, you know, computers were running the same chip that was in uh, the, the 2020 iPad, like the A12Z or something. So they just like took that, put it in a Mac and said, boom, get to it. Basically. Uh, I also want to say, like, I think the iPad has actually been pretty successful. It's more like, what do you envision it being, right? If the goal was like, hey, this iPad will replace your laptop or something, that hasn't happened. Right. But I also don't think that was ever actually the goal. Like the goal was give me a 10-inch thing that could let me browse the web and do all sorts of stuff. And I'll tell you, Nate, like just as like a general thing to have for families, like with my kids, like if they're, they're at the dinner table and like they just want to watch something, I don't want to put on the TV. They have an iPad that has like all their apps and stuff configured. When we go on a road trip, I could bring, uh, we have multiple iPads in this home at this point. My wife has one that she, is her own personal thing. We have two for our kids and one is like a slightly faster one. So when my daughter wants to play games, we bring that one to the car. Really easy to configure. I don't have to think about it. It also has some offloaded movies and stuff. So that's I like hearing that from you as a PC guy because it does like kind of bring into relief the where it did find success. Like, okay, it didn't replace the laptop. Uh, but it's such a flexible canvas for so many things that like it can it can mean something different to everybody. Like your use cases are totally different than mine, but it's great that it can be both of those things. You do so many things like every day at dinner, like we do a FaceTime call with my parents and doing that on a tablet size screen is much better because then it's almost life size for my kids. So it's super flexible platform. And again, one of those things like, man, you just Microsoft, you just completely missed the boat on this. You just like, did not see this at all and the surfaces are just not quite the same. Yeah. I think it's slotted in as the fourth device. Yeah. You got desktop, laptop, phone, and tablet. And I mean, who does tablet better than Apple? Um, you can definitely say that the Galaxy Tab is in the conversation, but it's like it a exists. wallflower in that yeah. conversation. For for the for the average person, there's no reason to recommend an Android tablet over an iPad, even if you don't otherwise use Apple hardware. Especially because the iPads got so cheap too. So like, even before the tenth gen, um, like the the basic one used to be three twenty nine. Now occasionally you can get the tenth gen for that price. So all that stuff was good. Um, what does also say about the Apple Silicon stuff? Like they just really escalated that so quickly, right? Like scaling it to the M1 Pro and Max chips to the Ultra chips to everything yeah, that we've seen. Crazy. Like, 
Yeah, Apple was just like on a freaking roll with that stuff. So maybe the new Mac Pro is again a disappointment because they were expecting an even more like extreme chip, which didn't end up happening. But yeah, it seems like yeah. that's like the one thing they need to solve for. Like the studio is a great it's option, so I'd good. imagine, for most people. Yeah. But, you know, I think that for the price you're paying for the Mac Pro, it does, I believe that's the same, it has the same, same chip, chip as the same RAM, yeah. same hard drive. So you're really just paying for expandability, which not everybody necessarily needs. So I think, I mean, I was talking to our one of our editors, Aaron Saporis, and he was like, they just need to bolt two Ultras together. And then you're, you know. That's what they like were trying they could, to do. Like that was supposed to be the extreme okay. chip. And I hear, from what I've read, Apple had a lot of trouble making that actually work. And also, was it even worth it, right? Like the Mac Studio is so powerful that I think for most video editors and like creatives that need that big power, that is the thing you get. Who is the Mac Pro for at this point? Like, because people aren't, unless you're like one of the top level VFX people working for Disney or something like, you're not going to need all the other cards that are going to those systems. And a lot of those things have also been broken out as external devices that you could Mm -hmm. also attach to to a Mac Studio or something. So it's a weird thing. Yeah, one might say that the Mac Pro exists right now for the eventual invention of you know like an M1 M series extreme, but it isn't there yet. So Nate, after working on this piece and after being you know a Mac fiend fan for so (laughs) long, like how do you feel about where the Mac is headed? Because I do think it was, it felt like it was ignored for a bit. I, I still would like to see more innovation in macOS because essentially macOS still feels like macOS X, you know, that came in 2001 yeah. at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Most of the innovation on the software side, like I was mentioning, does seem to be focused around integrating across all of your your hardware, which makes sense. The sort of the phone is now the hub of everyone's life. So it needs to be tied into that well. But yeah, I think... I think that they could do more there. I'm not sure exactly what though. Like it's, it's one of those things where you have a product that's so mature at a certain point that I'm like, what would be innovation? That's not just for innovation's sake. I guess that's the question. Um, it's not up to me to figure that out. Fortunately, since I'm not a designer, um, I don't know. Is there anything in particular that you feel would, you know, when you say you're still like windows ride and die, uh, even though you I mean, use I a use, Mac, use is there anything that you would like to see? Like, is there anything that windows does that when you go to a Mac, you're like, this could be better. I'm sure there is. What what kind That's of stuff? A good question. Do you Maybe feel? some of the flexibility, yeah. but at the same time, like on a Mac, you can install third-party software pretty easily. That's not a huge issue. It's the game stuff. Like I, yes. so I will tell you my setup. I have a big desktop that I built, and I upgrade, and I do GPU testing and stuff. That is my personal desktop. But I also have our work Mac that I use quite a bit. I also have review machines floating around. But I will tell you, the review laptops I keep leaning towards is always always the Macs, always the latest Macs because they feel so good to type on. They are sturdy. I can take them anywhere. They're super capable and the battery life goes on for freaking ever. So actually, you know, it's, yeah, yeah. It's funny when you were talking about, you know, the Mac, uh, the Mac, PC wars in the early 2000s when they moved to Intel. And I remember a lot of people advocated, you know, have a windows tower and then have a Mac portable. Perfect. perfect And I feel like, you know, yeah. Like for someone like you, that makes perfect sense or anyone who wants to like, play games, go more performance oriented. And you can get an air for like a reasonable amount of money that will just kill it and last forever. That's basically it. Like I needed good battery life, like especially when I was an early tech reporter, like having good battery, good internet, um, you know, like that, that's really all it took. So the air ended up being perfect back then. 
Um, and I, yeah. I went to CES for the first time this year in four years, mm-hmm. uh, so since Apple Silicon. And I tell you what, it was great to literally not worry about, like, I was like, I basically Wild. didn't even need to bring my charger to with me. Like, if I needed to be, I was going to be out for three, four, five hours, like, not a problem at all. It's kind of weird. Yeah, it's kind of magical because I remember my first CES is I, like, built up a whole bag of, like, uh, this was before I had a MacBook Air, I think. So I had a bag of like uh, Duracell or something, like extra battery packs I would plug yeah. in or something. It was just, uh, you need so much gear to even cover something like CS. So yeah. I know. It's nice to be able to be have so much lighter of a bag now. Like when I, um, I remember, yeah, my first one, I had a DSLR and like a four and a half pound, uh, yes. you know, MacBook, yes. and like, yeah. which is not that heavy, but like it adds up for sure. Um, and now I've got like this tiny mirrorless camera and a Mac that weighs like three pounds and it's oh, nice, especially it's, as I get old. And <laughs> oh man, oh, yeah. man. Uh, in, ter- in terms of things I'd like to see, it is probably the game stuff, which I think Apple is starting to fix the, you know, the Apple Silicon chips have good graphics. So I, I played some lies of P on yeah. like the latest MacBook Same. Pros and it worked. It was totally fine. So right. Death Stranding's coming. Yeah, yeah. Would love to see more of that. Um I can also play, you know, Xbox cloud streaming games easily on a Mac yeah. because yep. that's the beauty of cloud streaming. So there's actually not much more I want from Mac laptops at this point. Maybe maybe get a little cheaper like the MacBook Pro 14. Um I, Apple has to fix their minimum specs. I do remember the MacBook Pro 14 is cheaper than it used to be, but it also still comes with eight gigabytes of RAM for like sixteen hundred dollars or something. So don't yeah, do that. and it doesn't it doesn't have a uh, and it's, it's the base M three, not yes. the Pro. So yes. like I remember, so I, I personally bought an M one Pro MacBook. I remember that it was the base two thousand dollar configuration, uh, which had sixteen gigs and five twelve uh, storage, which was which was fine for me at the time. So I got that, and now they have options that cost less than that, but you're losing out on the the Pro chip, which is less essential to me. But also, you're stuck with low RAM. I don't which, even you know again. I don't even mind losing on the Pro chip. It's more that RAM. It's yeah. more because yep. you cannot upgrade the RAM. You can't upgrade the RAM on these machines, and that makes it a pain to be stuck with eight gigabytes for however long you have. A yeah, I'd, I'd tell laptop. someone to just get a get an error and upgrade the RAM and they'd be good to go. Most people um, probably would be. Yeah. To be honest. I, I mean, like I, I'm looking forward to, to the M three airs coming out. Uh, I reviewed the 15 inch M two last year and I loved it. Like it was great. Cause I love having a slightly bigger screen, uh, but it's still super light, super thin. Like that would be my, if I had to buy a laptop, that's probably what I would get. That's pretty, um, yeah. I, I I have not spent much time with that because I do recall you reviewed that Nate. So that thing was cool from what I saw at the, at the Apple campus. Anyway, we are gonna anyway. definitely gonna have some new Apple devices coming soon. Like, yeah, there are rumors that the M3 Air is probably gonna drop within the next few months. Um, I liked what I saw from the M3 chips, although yeah, the M3 Pro is a little iffy compared to the M2 Pro. Um, mm. but the hardware is good, folks. So yeah, yeah, recommendation if you wanted a Mac today, I I would still say go for the M2 Air or wait a bit because an upgrade is coming. At the same time, if you get a good deal on the M2 Air, like that, that computer is going to last you forever. Yeah, it's going to. And if and if you and if you like nice stuff and you got the budget, then get a Pro. Get like a a more base level one. The screen is great. Obviously, you'll get a little more performance. Um, You'll get a few more ports, which is obviously nice. The Um, the nice big difference with the Pro is that the screen has the ProMotion, so it has a higher refresh rate. It's mini LED. It's mini mini LED, LED. so it's so bright even outside in sunlight. So that is the big deal there. Okay, Nate, thank you so much for reminiscing on the Mac with me. Let's move to some other news and a lot of less fun news because it turns yeah. out like um, I think a lot of companies are regretting hiring a ton of people throughout the pandemic, which is what we're seeing. 
Uh, this morning, we saw news that Microsoft is slashing 1,900 jobs across Xbox and Activision Blizzard. Um, we have so far counted over 6,000 or around 6,000 layoffs in the games industry in 2024 alone. Right? Not even February yet. Not even February. Riot Games laid off 530 people, 11% of their workforce. Unity laid off 1,800 people, 25% of their yeah. workforce. eBay, 1,000 people. 9% of their workforce. We have a whole big list of tech layoffs because I think this is a good thing to just track to see like what is happening across the industry. It's called all the big tech layoffs in 2023 and 2024. You could check out that piece folks, but yeah, Nate, how are you feeling about this? Because it's not looking good in tech. It's not looking good in media either. I have a lot no. of friends at the LA times who just lost their jobs. Um, pitch, pitchfork. Yeah. There's, I don't think we've gotten any super clarity yeah. on what's happening to pitchfork. Pitchfork is being, being folded into, into GQ, right? And that will likely yeah. lead to redundancies. Right. I think supposedly they've already made the layoffs, but it's not been as publicly um, talked about as as these game ones. Um, or maybe they just don't know yet, and so people are just waiting for the axe to fall, which is terrible. Um, the Microsoft one, I can the most recent one, I should say, the one from today, uh, it does seem like a consequence of merging, right? Like this tends to happen, not that it makes it um, any less unfortunate for people affected by it, but yeah, it does seem like you know, when you talk about merging two massive companies like this, there's usually um, some people who unfortunately don't see it through. Not great to see. I almost feel like, first of all, the um, executives who end up hiring like people and end up initiating all these hires early on, um, this is less the Microsoft thing, but they like they are always like riding scot-free. Like they are still totally fine, even though thousands of people will lose their work because of their decisions. On the Microsoft side, it would be cool if mergers like, if that could be a thing, like, hey, I, yeah, maybe some jobs may, may be redundant, but just because you guys are merging does not mean like you can let go of all these people. Like, worker protections is one thing. Yeah, it, sh it should be part of what, of. yeah, yeah, should be part of what happens ideally. But here we are. Here we are. At least like we are seeing unprecedented uh, union support and like vocal worker rights, you know, discussions all across uh, tech and gaming and everything now. So, Hopefully we'll keep that up and I don't know, hopefully it'll make a difference, but this is truly sad to see folks. So if you've been affected by any of these layoffs, yeah, we're pulling for you. This is just awful. In other news, uh, there are also a couple other Apple stories. Uh, there was a, a report that apparently the Apple car still exists, <laughs> could debut in 2028 with reduced autonomy, because I think the early idea was Apple was going to build like the perfect self-driving car. Level four, level four like, or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that it seems like they have, may have given up on that plan um but apple doing an ev especially by 2028 i could see that working sure why not that's that's interesting uh yeah. the apple car to me and since we we're talking you know apple history this one we'll see if you remember do you remember the i remember Project Titan. apple tv rumors that, yes yes that never happened even though so many analysts are like i swear to god it's happening i'm sure they were, i'm sure they worked on it they, they, yes, like they have yes, definitely to be worked fair. on this stuff but you look at the TV industry when people were saying that and Sony stopped, I think for a while, Sony like basically stopped building their own TVs to a certain degree. Like they've really scaled back their whole TV operation. Like because the cheap um, Chinese TVs from TCL and other folks like started happening, there were just no margins in that industry. And yeah. Apple did not have the Apple's not going to get in there. Yeah. So, but do they have the experience in automotive? Like there must, there must be a, there's got to be a partner situation, right? Like Sony, Honda, like there's no way that Apple's just going to like sell a car. Like I, I mean, just I don't could, believe You know it. what? Uh, you know who just sold a car is like freaking Tesla, you know, Rivian, a company that did not yeah. exist 
ended up has made like one of the best SUVs I've ever seen. Also a really well-reviewed pickup truck. Like the thing about EVs is like, it is ultimately a computer, right? Like you will have the car components, yeah. but the heart of it is a computer. And then you just have to deal with electric motors and all like the wheels and the chassis and the, the, the design of the stuff. I think if any tech company could do this, Nate, it would be Apple, to be honest. I like, yeah. I like your uh, perspective on that because I just feel like it's such a, like it's a, it's a unicorn that we're going to write about for a decade and never see much of anything come out. Like I could see them integrating their technology into another car, perhaps. I mean, that's um, CarPlay, baby. And that's why. No, but, but I, I'd fighting. say like maybe yeah. the, more with sensors and, and whatnot for autonomous. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't I don't know the auto industry super well, but I guess like, yeah, for me, it seems like the missing piece is a is working with a more established automaker because there's just stuff that they just don't have manufacturing capability or expertise in, I would have to imagine. And yeah, they can hire all they want. And, and maybe I'm wrong about this. You know, you point to obviously new Like Rivian like came out of nowhere right. and spent right. billions to make this happen. Yeah. And Apple's got the war chest that they could do this. I just wonder if they're going to get into a market. Like, it's such a different market than consumer electronics in terms of like margins and like how you how you work this no, stuff. No, you're right. That you're right. Just, what's the, is, what is the benefit to them going to be that great? But, you know... I'm imagining, you know, you've got a kid who had an iPod in 2020 or in 2001 and has a, you know, Mac in 2020 and maybe in 2040, he's going to be like, yeah, I want a friggin' Apple car. I don't know. There, There's like a dedicated population who will pay for expensive products. And certainly Apple has cultivated that type of uh, that type of group. Uh, I do remember in 2001 being like, I'm never going to get an, Air, an iPod and I actually never ended up getting an iPod because I had like all these other things instead. Uh, and I kind of wish I did, actually. I do miss that. Um, but to what you're saying, Nate, like I'm looking at Rivian, I'm looking at those like cute designs for their cars. I'm squinting. I'm like, that looks like an iMac. Mm -hmm. That looks like if I squinted mm -hmm. and Apple designed a car, it would look like a cute little Rivian or something. So a lot of these companies also aren't doing really well. Rivian has been in a lot of trouble. I would not be surprised. First of all, that Apple has its own project, but also, hey, just wait for one of these EV car makers to be like, um, uh, to tap out. And Apple yeah. can buy them on the cheap and get all their factories. I've been to a Rivian warehouse here in Atlanta and they just like, they ship cars in by train. They get them sent out to people. Like they have a whole process. Their software is really good. Um, I could just see Apple fitting in here. I could not see Microsoft doing this. Like, let's see, here's the thing. Like, I think Apple has such a cohesive vision for hardware and software and everything that they could make it happen. Um, Microsoft, I don't know what the hell's going Microsoft is all <laughs> AI at this point. So mm -hmm. unless mm -hmm. they could put an yeah. AI copilot in their car, I don't think Microsoft I, would ever do that. I very much appreciate that perspective because, like, I, you know, I, even though I do like a lot of what Apple does, this one has always felt odd to me. But, like, this is good context for, like, why it might make sense. Ten years ago, certainly would have been odd, Nate, like, because Tesla was just starting out. There weren't that many other EV companies, so it seemed like a joke. But I do think, like, the existence of Rivian alone is just like, hey, you can do this. It will cost you a lot of money and you will be in danger of failing at all times. But it is possible also, no, and Apple has a lot of money. <laughs> Apple has so much money. I mean, listen, I was I was just like looking around and seeing like Apple <laughs> Apple has enough in its war chest uh, to buy Disney do if this. they wanted to. Yeah. They could do so yeah. many things. Like Disney's market cap is less than you know Apple's war chest at this point. That would not be responsible. But and Apple's not a company that tends to do these things. What was the what was the prediction we made? We made some prediction about oh Apple buying Peloton. Or something. Oh, yeah. And I do feel like those moves, I would not be surprised to see because I'm here. 
like listen I, I i am very lucky to have a life where i can work pretty freely and work from home and work all over the place wherever i go and get my work done i'm not moving as much as i'd like to and apple fitness tries to make that happen but it doesn't and i'm like oh i would like a peloton i would like it with apple software that could totally happen Hey folks, this is Devinder here. I'm just jumping in to point out some quick updates that landed right after we were done recording. Apple has confirmed it's changing the App Store rules for the EU. That includes allowing people to download apps from outside the App Store, use alternative payments, and uh, more easily set their default browser. As Bloomberg reports, uh, developers will also be able to create uh, tap-to-pay apps using the phone's payment chip um, and just basically get deeper access to everything. It also means that the 30% commission, uh, or at least that was the maximum commission that Apple used to implement, that's gone in Europe. Instead, Apple's going to be taking a 17% cut on app sales, and uh, there are also going to be additional fees, as we'll be talking about later in this episode. There's going to be a 3% payment processing charge for apps that use the in-app purchase system, and a 50 euro cent per app install fee um, for software installed more than 1 million times. According to Apple. More than 99% of developers in the EU will see their payments decrease, and fewer than 1% will need to pay the app install fee. This does confirm that there will be no additional commission for apps sold outside the App Store, aside from that 50 euro cent fee. Now, these are all pretty big changes, and uh, you know, there's no clue if it's going to reach outside of the EU at this point, but it's certainly an interesting testbed for Apple to test it. They're clearly responding to the Digital Markets Act. Uh, this is not something from Apple's own benevolence. Something that will affect all of us, though, is that Apple also announced that it's going to be opening up in-app experiences a bit more. I just wrote a story over at Engadget. Uh, they're going to be allowing streaming games, mini apps, chatbots, things like that within apps. So that means a developer can create a single app that houses their catalog of streaming games. So if, for example, you ever wanted to play those Xbox Cloud streaming games via Game Pass, you can't do that right now on the iOS apps. Um, but with these new rules, you potentially could. Microsoft has also said it also has a uh, mobile app store of its own uh, just for games that's ready to go on iOS and Android. Uh, there's a chance we could see this soon. This also means we'll likely see other streaming stores launch with their own apps and just let you play games right from within them as well. Apple also says that there are going to be new discovery opportunities for these built-in experiences. I'm not quite sure what that means, and they're not being more clear, but most likely it could be that there are going to be new sections on the App Store that highlight apps that feature streaming games or chatbots or things like that. Okay, that's all the new stuff. Back to my chat with Nate. In other Apple news, by the way, uh, the Wall Street Journal reported that Apple is planning fees and restrictions for downloads outside the app store. This uh, is interesting. The other, the other side of Apple. The other side of Apple. <laughs> this, the stuff that I don't like as much. So apparently like the company is making these plans in response to like oppression uh, from European uh, regulators and law. I mean, I believe it's more than, yeah, it's more than pressure. Yeah. Like there's a new law, right? It's a, there's a law. So uh, reading from the Wall Street Journal here. Um, so right now, if you want an app on your iPhone, it has to come through the app store or you do this thing where like um, you can get like beta testing apps through what's the thing called? Test flight. Test flight. Yeah. Does that? But you have to get that through the app store. You have so. to get that through the app store, and that still has like all this registration stuff. So there is no like third party app accessibility. There is no side loading on iPhones, but there will have to be because of this. And according to this Wall Street Journal report, um, Apple says uh, or they're saying that these new policies will. Um, basically force people or force companies to pay fees and deal with other restrictions when they're downloading apps, uh, when users are downloading apps outside of the iPhone store. 
uh, or the App Store. So that includes, these companies include Meta and Spotify are preparing new download options for customers in anticipation of the new rules. And uh, Wall Street Journal says Meta is considering a system that would allow people to download apps directly from Facebook ads. Spotify plans to let users um, offer users the ability to download some of its iPhone apps directly from its website. Uh, Microsoft is apparently weighed on launching its own third-party app store for games, which would make a lot of yeah, sense. And, and, and yesterday, or maybe the day before, Spotify um, sort of showed off what its in-app payment system is going to look like for iOS users. So like this different, a different prong, right? There's talking about app downloads versus payments, but this is part of all part of the same uh, EU digital markets act. That's opening things up here a bit. The thing that I don't understand is I'm like, how will Apple collect this stuff? If it's a, if it's truly a third party thing, I mean, like, this is just like the, the pay payment thing we talked about. Basically developers can link to websites to deal with payments within their apps. There was no way to track any of that stuff. So right. maybe the apps still have to get certified to a certain degree, right? Like maybe Apple can say like, okay, you can get it from elsewhere, but we still have to make sure it runs and doesn't add. There's a certain, right. Yeah. There'll be a certain, there'll be a certain quality control. And as part of that, yeah. Do you think, so do you think that is fair, Nate? Like, are you down with opening up the platform a bit more like Android? Because the downside to Android is that there is so much garbage out there. There's so much malware. And that's not a great user experience either. Yeah. And again, like I can sort of see both sides of this, like as somebody again, who's used the systems for a long time, uh, it, I don't feel like it impacts me negatively. Like I, it doesn't, I, I understand conceptually that the iPhone is a massive computing platform at this point, And thus it's kind of, um, there's a lot of precedent for having it be so tightly controlled uh, in terms of how you put software on it. Uh, so, okay. That, that probably needs to change. But I think that they're right when they say it can potentially, you know, lead to a worse experience, which is unfortunate. Um, on the, the on the third hand, uh, I think most of the average people who would be affected by stuff getting worse, they're probably still just going to use the app store, right? Mm -hmm, like, I don't think mm -hmm. they're going to, you know, or they'll use like, uh, you know, a, a massive app like Spotify if they're pointing people towards their payment systems. Maybe they'll use that instead. But I think for like, you know, my mom or, you know, the average person doesn't need to want to think about digital markets acts. They're just going to like use it as it is. And like, maybe some other people will, will find some additional freedoms here. That'll be good for them. And that mm -hmm. nothing wrong with that. I don't think people will go out seeking these apps, especially like general users, but like, Hey, if you have Facebook, right. And you're scrolling and you click a Facebook ad and it links you to somewhere else to get an ad. Like that is where I start to get worried. Like my IT yeah. sense is just like, Oh, I could see how that could <laughs> be a bad thing for everybody. Yes. Um, yes. And the iPhone has been a relatively like nice, clean malware-free experience for so many people for so long. Um, it hasn't been perfect, but certainly like Apple's restrictions have helped to like keep that all safe. So anyway, that is the thing that could be happening. It would be interesting to see Apple open it up um, outside of Europe. Yeah, I think as that well. the next the next mm -hmm. year around this is going to be really interesting. A lot is going to change. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the that's the problem of becoming so big. Uh, I forget if we mentioned this, but Apple uh, beat Samsung, you know, to be the most uh, shipping the most phones. Uh, was it last year or last quarter it or was, something? Yeah. Did they just announce that? I guess in 2023, I believe that's what they were measuring. That's pretty wild because I remember yeah. like, hey, I've been covering uh, we have been covering the smartphone industries like since this whole thing has been beginning. And yeah, iPhone started it. But as soon as Android phones started selling, like Google has dominated the smartphone industry enhances because they were cheaper. There are so many of them. You could get them customized. And the fact that Apple has reached overtaken that, that is just crazy. Yeah. It made, it made sense to me that like 
the iPhone might be the most popular single model because they only make, relatively speaking, a handful of them versus, you know, like Samsung and other companies who have lots of different. No, no one phone will distinguish itself from the Android market like the iPhone. But yeah, as a overall, um, like, yeah, overall, that means like there are more iOS devices shipped than Android. Like, that's crazy. Totally, totally wild. So anyway, folks, let us know what you think about what Apple is doing and these new rules and potential restrictions for external app downloads, podcasts, and gadget.com. In other news, we also saw the story about Nightshade, uh, the AI poisoning tool, uh, which I think was initially talked about in October 2023. We had written about it in Gadget. Now version 1.0 has been released, um, started as a project from the University of Chicago. And I think the idea, right, is it's... um, I'm actually looking at it right up here from our podcast producer, Nate. So yeah, it's using AI to change the color of pixels in a piece of art in a way that's imperceptible to humans, but reads as very significant to the AI models behind generators like Midjourney and Stable Diffusion. So that is basically you can make stuff. And once the AI generators grab it, it will get destroyed a little bit or will not work and will just prevent your work from being scraped by AI models. Thoughts on this, Nate? I mean, I think something like this is sorely needed, right? Like, it's 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 upsetting to hear about how much you know human generated artwork or writing or whatever is being ingested and then spit back out and you know in the same way that you know people talk about oh is AI going to ruin uh, journalism uh, it can also ruin any any number of industries if it starts you know like generating artwork based on all the work people have done before and and, and I don't know there's there's definitely just something that doesn't sit well with me about that so. Um, I think, yeah, stuff like this is, is pretty important, I would say. Where, where are you at with it? It's, uh, I mean, certainly, I think the artists should be able to like protect their stuff. Uh, we have seen several AI executives basically come out and say, like, hey, listen, if we cannot crawl this information, if we can't get this stuff, our AI can't exist. I'm like, too bad yeah, then. They don't comprehend that people are like, good. We, d- we didn't ask for this, you know? Um, right. So pay f- go pay for it. <laughs> go pay for it, license it, do something else. I think so. I think the vast majority of public opinion is like, well, we didn't ask for this stuff as cool as some people may find it. Like, I don't think people will care if these companies have to pay to access it. That just seems fair to me. That just seems yeah, like not even a little bit. If open AI is like, we can't afford to pay all these authors whose books we've scraped in like the New York Times and so on and so forth, then you didn't build a sustainable business model. Sorry. You don't just get to do this because you want to. Well, because and because VC money has given them the power to do it, and right, it's always better to ask shoot, for forgiveness first. Ask, yeah, exactly. It's uh, it is such a shame. Uh, so anyway, I think the the nightshade tool is cool. We will probably find more things like this, and um, I would not be surprised. Like, listen, I also think a big part of the media layoffs we're seeing recently too is that. A lot of companies are just like, we can get stuff written by AI, and they're trying to do mm-hmm. it. Uh, Sports Illustrated try to do it. They're failing miserably, but that does not mean that they're going to stop trying. You know, right. so and it does not mean they will always fail. This, you know, obviously we're like the iteration is happening extremely quickly. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so I don't know if you like journalism, pay for it, folks. At least your favorite outlets, please pay for them because uh, we're dying out here. It's pretty. It's it's not a great time. Let's move on to what we're working on. Nate, what is going yeah. on with you? Uh, well, I just wrapped up the, the Mac overview. And, uh, before that I had just reviewed, um, once again, it's, it's, it's a new year. So there was a new last of us product. <laughs> yeah, yes, review. there is. Uh, I the, saw the that. part, part two remaster, which uh, it's only a $10 upgrade if you bought the first game. So like, it makes it kind of a no brainer. There's a really fun roguelike mode in it. So if you like the, if you like that game and you might play it again, I'd say it's worth your $10. 
Um, but now that I've got that stuff cleared, I'm kind of just like looking for the next thing here uh, while continuing to keep an eye on the day-to-day news. Gotcha, gotcha. I know you're always bogged down by news, Nate, so it's always cool when we get to read your writing outside of that stuff. I've got a bunch of GP reviews. The Sundance Film Festival is actually wrapping up right now, but the online screenings for Sundance are just beginning. So I'm hoping to... Is there anything you're looking forward to in particular? Or do you not know yet? <sighs> There's... Um... There's the one Love You, the Kristen Stewart movie about a satellite and a buoy falling in love, which sounds kind of cool. <laughs> and that may actually be relevant. Like, I may be able to write that up for us. I have just written up a story about Eternal. She's so interesting. She's great. She's just making all the good choices. I also cannot wait to see the other Sundance movie she has, Love Lies Bleeding, which just looks like a kick-ass, like, great feminist noir type of movie. Um, looks cool. But uh, I have written up Eternally You, which is a documentary about uh, companies that uh, they're AI companies using AI to digitally resurrect your dead loved ones. This is a thing that exists. These companies already exist. Um, Some people are using them. There's a big viral article in 2021 about some guy using uh, Project December to do that. So, Oh, yes, that sounds familiar. Yeah, it was like a big thing. So he is actually in this movie. I think the movie itself is pretty – it's well-made has some really interesting interviews with these folks. And unfortunately, and unsurprisingly, the tech people behind it just like are not thinking at all about like what this actually means. Or like, hey man, I'm just building this thing. It's up to you what you do with it. If you abuse it and think you're talking to your actual dead loved one, that's not my fault, the person who creates this product. Um, it's hilarious. Sounds familiar. It sounds familiar. Like we are just making the same mistakes we always do. But the AI afterlife industry is a thing that already exists, and I don't know. Who knows what's going to happen after this, but we are clearly I feel like we've written about that at least once. Am I making that up? I think we have. This is not a brand new thing. So I think the movie itself is a good way to bring this whole thing to a new audience. Because um, it does yeah, boil I think it down. That, yeah, really well. I would say what, what, the AI, what AI needs in terms of, like, it needs these things that people can, like, relate to and see how it's being used uh, to to show both why it can be interesting and why it's upsetting because like it's i think for a lot of people it feels very abstract still like it does to me certainly like i'm like what exactly does chat gpt mean like sometimes i'm not sure right have you played Um, with any of the tools yet nate like anything only a little bit i uh i have one of the google labs things turned on so i'll see like the ai overviews when i search and i'm more annoyed at them than finding them useful i would say start asking questions like things i like to do is just like hey can you get me just spec comparisons between these two machines and let me just glance Mm -hmm. at it and it will do it in a way that's interesting i still have to like double check the specs and everything but you can just like get those requests going Again, the thing I recommend over and over again is Mac Whisper, which is using one of the GPT like tools to do really good um, transcription and things like that. So there are ways we can implement this stuff that do help us in ways that have never been really possible before. But then people are just like going straight to these streams, like let me let me make a persona of your dead father or something so you can say yeah. goodbye. And, I like yeah. the idea of assisting us with tasks that are difficult that. AI can be better at, certainly. Uh, but yeah, then you get into these other weird areas that I'm less cool with. People are not thinking about the human cost of any of this stuff, which is also, you know, there's a commentator who's like, yeah, this is kind of where we were with social media a decade ago. This is cool. Everyone's racing to make their thing, but we're not stopping to think, you know, it's it's the Jurassic Park quote, you know, your scientists didn't stop to think if they should, only if they could. I'm just paraphrasing at this point. But that's basically it. Let's move on to our pop culture picks for the week. Nate, sure. what do you got? You got music. Uh, Yeah, music today, uh, which I'm surprised I don't do more often when I come on. But uh, there's this band, The Beaches, from Canada. They've been around for about a decade. But last year, they released a new album that 
uh, got them a lot of attention. It's called Blame My Ex. It's a classic breakup album. It's a nice like new wave slash uh, punky kind of rock mixture. It's just unbelievably catchy. Like I have not been able to stop listening to it for the last month. Uh, I wake up every morning and have one of the songs from it in my head. Uh, the title track is, or the, the first track is called blame Brett. And like, she's like straight up naming the guy, I guess the singer, uh, was dating a singer of another band and they broke up, but it's interesting because it's less about like Uh what you did and more about how she's a mess now. Uh, so it's, it's, it's not, even though she says blame Brett, it's not like a, it's not like a like shit talking sort of thing. It's just her being like, I am a absolute mess now. Just everyone know this. Uh, and you know, don't blame me, blame my ex. Uh, but even beyond, it's it's a little bit gimmicky and cute, but like the whole album is just like, again, super catchy, super enjoyable. And it's fun to see them like after 10 years of being, you know, relatively obscure, having this kind of big moment in the sun right now. Let's hear a little clip from the beaches. So as for me this week, hey guys, I'm trying to read books. It's a thing I've not had time to do for so, so long. Uh, Something I basically started to miss, like once I had my first kid, you know, once my daughter was born, it was basically like, oh, my hands are always full. I'm always like, the thing I could do is listen to podcasts. I can do stuff, but if I'm holding the baby and sleeping, books are just kind of a hard thing to get through. So I'm trying to make time for that now. I'm finally getting into uh, the three body problem which is going to be a show on Netflix soon. This is the Liu Sixin book, which is about a lot of things, but basically about humans coming to terms with the fact that they may not be alone in the universe. And it's all kind of crazy and wild. And I think it's a really good read. And uh, yeah, it turns out reading uh, can be great and therapeutic for your brain. So maybe you should all try it out. I'm also checking Absolutely. out. Absolutely. Yeah, it's um, also taking advantage. I, I've recommended a few books on my time here, actually. You, you have, you have. And, uh, I mean, yeah. they, you have something that I don't all the time, which is more free time. <laughs> like if, if you no, have no. books, yes. I, I sympathize with everybody who who has that's a similar situation. I'm like, if you can just find a time, like read one book a month, man, even would, it just like makes something. such a difference. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, Spotify has added audiobooks to their platform and I'm actually spending a little more time with that. I typically have not been so into audiobooks because I have a hard time like listening to prose, you know, like, and actually following it compared to just like reading it. But I love podcasts and I love people having conversations. So I'm trying to find books that fit that one good audiobook I've been checking out is the Werner Herzog, um, memoir which he wrote himself where he narrated himself. So I'm also like have his soothing German voice. It's called every man for himself and God against all, because that's a a Werner Herzog title. That was supposed to be a title of one of his movies, but anyway, it's worth a listen. It's on Spotify right now. If you have Spotify premium, so I'd recommend that. Also shout out to Ferrari, the Michael Mann movie, which is now available on home video or video on demand. Um, we just did a review of that over at the film cast. I'm, I love that movie so much. I've seen it several times at this point. I had to run out to see it in the theater um, because the sound design is so good. Adam Driver is a very good answer Ferrari, but I also think it is like everything I love about Michael Mann movies, which is just like pure operatic drama. It is just so beautiful and so heightened. The vibes are right. It is, um, yeah, I mean, it's so moving and also features like one of the most horrific car crashes you'll ever see in film. Like oh, I've geez. seen a lot of like car movies and movies with car chases and stuff. And this is just like, this is a real thing to happen. 
but they have to cover it in the movie. So I think the movie is fantastic. Check it out. Rent it wherever you get movies or buy it. I'd recommend buying it. Well, one last thing to circle back on audiobooks uh, when you're talking about how it's great to hear whoever's um, reading them oftentimes can make a big difference. A couple of years ago, Andy Serkis recorded yes. uh, The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, and I haven't listened to them, but it sounds like he just crushes it. Obviously, he can do uh, a Gollum voice like no other, but it sounds like throughout the books, he really just like dives into it. Uh, I just reread them all for Christmas, but now I want to listen to them. And that's it for this week, folks. Our theme music is by game composer Dale North. Our outro music is by our very own managing editor, Terrence O'Brien. The podcast is produced by Ben Elman. You can find me online at Devendra on Mastodon and Blue Sky and everywhere. Uh, if you follow me on threads, I will not reply. Sorry, I'm not using threads. Nate, where can we find you? Uh, that's a good question. I'm not really on anything at the moment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I have an Instagram that I don't post to very often. I mean, you read books, Nate, so you don't, have, you don't have time for social media, which is exactly. good. That's a smart thing yeah. to do. Email. You can email me. Email Nate. Uh, do you want to give out your email? Nathan, Nathan, Nathan at Engadget. Just hit me up. All right. Hit him up. Let Nate know how you feel about his Mac at 40 piece. And also, Uh-oh. you can always email us at podcasts at Engadget.com. Leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe on anything that gets podcasts, folks. Thanks. We're out. <laughs>